All right, so we're continuing in this series on uh, the, the church and what the church is, who the church is, what it's about, what it's for, uh, and we're going through the book of Acts. And remember, if you will, from the past couple messages, if you haven't been here, I'll get you up to speed, uh, but the church specifically is not a building. When we say, like this morning, you might have woken up and you might have said, well, we're going to go to church, and you think of this place at 400 Reading Road in East Earl, and it is true, this building is, we are a church, but the church is bigger than that. It's the people of God. It's those people specifically who are on following Jesus, and they are on mission with him. That is the church, and so that includes every tribe, tongue, nation. There is nowhere on earth that you can go, or for the most part, there's nowhere on earth that you can go, that you will not find the church people who are following Jesus Christ. And so this morning we're going to continue in this and talk more about the family of God and what God is doing. I want to begin this morning with an illustration for you, uh, kind of get us thinking uh, about this topic that we're going to talk about, because we're going to talk about discipline, and nobody really, I don't know anybody that really likes talking about discipline. I certainly don't, especially when I'm the one being disciplined. So I want to start with this illustration. So I want you to picture that we, uh, we are out to dinner with maybe a group of people. If you feel like being out to dinner with me by yourself would be inappropriate, then let's add a group of people there so that it's not inappropriate. So we're out to dinner uh, with a group of people, and there's a family sitting next to us at the, the restaurant. And there's two boys and a mom and dad. And uh, we notice that as we're sitting there, there's some, there's some disturbance that begins to happen in the, the uh, booth next to us. Right? One of the brothers takes a french fry. That doesn't lead to anything good. So the other brother starts yelling at him. And then there's pushing and shoving. And suddenly there's soda on the floor. There's a mess. There's a big disturbance. There's yelling. And so I get up from my seat and I take the two boys and I take them out of the restaurant. I take them out to the van and I correct them. And I give them a controlled swat on the behind. I bring them back into their seats, put them with their parents because their parents weren't dealing with it. And I sit down. (laughs) Now, what will you think? You will think the pastor done lost his mind, right? You will think, I guess I will be visiting him in prison and we better fire up the search committee because we're going to need a new associate pastor, correct? All right. Well, the reason that that illustration is somewhat funny or humorous uh, is because we, I would never do that. The reason I would never do that is because it is not my responsibility to discipline those children. It is always a parent's responsibility, father or mother, to discipline their own children. So discipline always is within the family. It always starts within the family. And so that's what we want to look at this morning. As we come to this passage in Acts chapter 5... We're going to see that discipline starts with his children. God's discipline starts with his children. It always starts in the family of God. And if you want to do deeper research on this, I don't have time to go into all this, but if you want to do deeper research, if that's the kind of person you are, Hebrews chapter 12, 1 Peter 4, and the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. God begins with his children. His discipline always begins with his children. And we come to this odd passage in Acts chapter 5 that deals with discipline in a way that I don't think any of us really would want to be a part of. So look at this, if you would. Open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. If you don't have a Bible, there's some of the pews there. We'll be on page 909. 
And we come to this uh, scenario here with these people called Ananias and Sapphira. Perhaps you're familiar with the story. Let me just give you some of the context here before we begin. So as we come through Acts chapter 2 and 3 and 4, we see God's church, this young group of believers, is catching uh, what I would say fire. Literally, the Holy Spirit has come upon them. Uh, 3,000 have been added to their number. Uh, They're sharing possessions. No one is taking things for themselves, but they're sharing in this community. And some would point to Acts 2 and Acts 4 and say this was a kind of like a utopia, right, that these people were living in this great love for one another, and there's all this energy around this young church. And all of a sudden, we come to this odd thing in Acts chapter 5, where God begins to discipline his family. Now, one thing you might want to note here, or why does this happen, is in Acts chapter 4, right before we get into Acts 5, there's this interesting note that Luke, the author here, gives us, and he says that Barnabas... He sold a field and he gave all of the proceeds from that field and laid it at the apostles' feet. In other words, he brought it to the church. He sold a field, said, I don't need this field, brought it to the church, gave it to the apostles. The apostles used it as they needed to bless the church and the body. Now, why does the author pick out Barnabas and why does he need to tell us that? Whenever you come across something in scripture that you're not quite sure about, you always have to ask the question, why did Luke decide to tell me that? Why did God want that in there? Well, I, might, I, I think chapter 5 might give us a clue. So let's read it together here. Ananias and Sapphira, chapter 5 of the book of Acts. But there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not to sell, as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for your land? Yes, she replied. That was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. And when the young man came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard about what had happened. So, I think what's happening here, I think a couple things, I'll make a couple notes on this. We see Barnabas right in the end of chapter 4. He gives away, he sells this property, gives it away, and he, he then brings the money to the apostles' feet. It's interesting that what Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira is, that field was yours to sell. That property was yours to sell. That car was yours to sell. But you said you sold it for this amount, but you only sold it for half of that or whatever the proportion might have been. And see, what I think is happening here is I think Ananias and Sapphira want the credit. Look at us. We sold a field. We gave the whole proceeds away. They want the credit. If you walk over to 
Uh, if you go to New Holland, I'm using this example because I have kids and it's just what I think about. But if you go over to New Holland Park, right, and there's all these like these pillars on the, at the, the playground, right, that have people's names, or they have a placard that says, this person's a silver donor, and this person's a gold donor, and this person's a platinum donor. Well, I think what Ananias and Sapphira were looking for was they wanted to be the platinum donors. They wanted the credit. They wanted that, that exaltation of men to say, wow, look at Ananias and Sapphira, Because Peter says to them, listen, you could have sold that and you could have brought half the money here and said, you know what, we've really been checking out another chariot and we want to buy that chariot and so we're going to use half of the money and we're only going to bring the other half to you. They could have done that. Peter's not getting on them for the amount of money they brought. It's the fact that they lied about how much they brought. They wanted the credit. Now, a couple things that I've got to point out to you on this. Number one is the Holy Spirit is God. This is one of those proof texts that we would use to illustrate that the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, and if you struggle with the Trinity, this isn't a message about the Trinity. I don't have enough time to go into it, but just picture a triangle. A triangle is one shape, right? But it has three points. God is the same way. One God, three different points are persons. We would say God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In verse 3, he says, you lied to the Holy Spirit. In verse 4, he says, you weren't lying to us, but to God. It's one of the proof texts we use to say the Holy Spirit is God. The next thing that I would point out to you is that Satan is part of the story. We like to ignore the fact that Satan is pushing in on us, that he wants us to fail, that he wants us to be separated from God, but we can't ignore it. It keeps showing up in the scriptures. Look at what he says in verse 3. Ananias, why have you let who? Satan fill your heart. Now, one of the reasons we're adverse uh, adverse to bringing Satan into the story is because people use it to absolve themselves of responsibility, right? Well, Satan made me do it, or the devil made me do it. Well, okay, but you also are accountable for it, right? And what Ananias, or what Peter points out is, he says, why did you let Satan fill your heart? As if Ananias had some kind of choice, that he could have made a choice, that he could have resisted the devil, as God tells us to do, and the devil would flee. But Ananias did not do that. So there's this warning, do not give the devil a foothold. So be aware, everybody, be aware that Satan is looking to trick you at every step. He's looking to make you deceive yourself and then also deceive others and ultimately put you in separation with God. The last thing is there's always consequences to sin. There is always consequences. Praise God that acts is a book that is descriptive, not prescriptive, right? Adam shared that early on as we began this series. If the book of Acts was prescriptive, what this would be saying is, when somebody is caught in a sin, we should kill them. Well, praise God that that's not the case. Because if that's the case, my head would be the first one on the chopping block. This is not a description of how we should handle church discipline. But it is, what it is telling us is, is that God is serious about sin. God is serious about sin, especially in the church. Especially in his family. God is serious about it. And this is what sin is. Sin is simply us saying that we know better than God. 
that we know better than he does, that we're putting our will above his. So when God says, do not take vengeance on somebody else because vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and we say, God, I don't believe you, I don't trust you, I'm going to take vengeance out on that person myself because I'm afraid you're going to be gracious to them like you have been to me. And they need to pay for what they've done. That's us taking it into our own hands, right? That's us saying, we know better than you do. Maybe it's us saying, I'm not going to obey the authorities in the land because they're a bunch of idiots. But God says we should obey them. He doesn't say in Romans 13, obey the authorities in the land as long as they are not idiots. Right? No, he says obey the authorities that God has put above you. You might disagree with them. But if they're not asking you to do something immoral or goes against God himself, then you have to listen. So the, the, the uh, speed limit, whether you question it's, uh, whether it's good or not or at the right speed, the authorities have been established. The Second Amendment, right? The Second Amendment, what you believe about that and gun ownership, the laws have been put in place. That's not one that God himself defends and says, this is how it should be, or this is how it shouldn't be. So when we look at those things and we say, ah, ignore that, I don't care, it's what we're saying is, God, I know better than you do. And that's sin. All right, let's move on. Acts chapter 5 is definitely, definitely pointing to the holiness of God, and that sin needs to be dealt with, and it starts in the family. And I want you to notice something, and here's, where, here's the hard part for me this week as I was working on this, and I think for us. This is the hard part. God's discipline starts in the family. When Jesus came to earth, think about when he came to earth and think through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Jesus did not walk around with a bat trying to correct everybody. He didn't walk around saying, don't say that, don't do that, don't watch that, don't sleep with that person. He didn't do that, right? He comes and he eats with tax collectors and sinners. And who does he get on the most? He gets on the Pharisees, the religious of the day. He gets on them the most because discipline starts in the family of God. For some of us, for some of us in the church, I'm afraid that we feel this angst, this need to go around correcting the world and saying, you're wrong here. You're wrong about that. Don't do that. We put this emphasis on dealing with sin in the world when we should be dealing with sin in the church, in our own camp. We should be dealing with sin in our own camp. I expect, I expect non-Christians, those without a Christian worldview, to act like non-Christians. I expect those who don't believe in God like I do to act like they don't believe in God. I expect them to have different opinions about morality. I expect them to hold different opinions about different things that I would challenge them on, but I expect them to act act that way. And I need to embrace the fact that I live in a post-Christian society. We need to embrace that. God doesn't ask Daniel... If you're familiar with who Daniel was, God doesn't ask Daniel to go into Babylon and change Babylon. He says, go into Babylon and bless them. Daniel works for the prophet of Babylon. It's an interesting challenge. It's an interesting challenge for us. Paul says it this way 
in 1 Corinthians 5. It isn't my responsibility to judge outsiders. Who's he talking about? He's talking about those outside the family of God. He's talking about those who don't yet believe in Jesus. But it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. I don't like that. I thought in Matthew 7, Jesus said, don't judge lest you be judged. Right? But this is where Paul tells us, hey, we're supposed to judge those inside the church, especially those who are sinning. Right. I think we need to be careful. I think we need to be really careful that we don't think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. So if this is getting a little uncomfortable, I'm going to stay with me. All right? Stay with me. So there's a purpose to this discipline. There's a purpose to discipline. Discipline is always, always, it is not to shame. It's not to malign. Discipline is always to restore, protect, and train. Discipline is always to restore, protect, and to train. That's what it's for. That's why God gives it to us. Just this past week, I was in a store uh, with my son, Josiah. He's four years old. We went to this place called Aldi. If you've ever gone to Aldi, uh, they have a different way of doing things because they don't pay, they want to keep their prices down, and so they don't pay a lot of employees. I think there's like two employees in the whole store. Uh, so if you need help finding something, good luck. Find it on your own which I'm a guy and I don't know where things are, so I usually walk around the store like five times before I find something. But anyway, we were finished paying and they just throw everything in the cart. You have to bag it yourself. And there's a counter there. They have this nice long counter for you to bag things. Well, Josiah wants to help me put things in the bag. So he climbs up on the counter and he's standing up there and he's leaning because to get the things out of the cart, he has to lean on the cart, right? So he's putting all his weight on his hand that's holding the front of the cart and he's starting to pull things out of the cart, Now, I understand physics well enough. I didn't understand Adam's lesson last week, but I understand (laughs) physics well enough to know that once his weight is more than the weight in the cart, that that cart's going to push out and he's going to end up on his face. So I looked at him and I'm helping him along. I'm training him. I'm protecting him. And I look at him and I say, Josiah, you can't stand like that because this cart's going to push out. Well, he's not listening to me. He doesn't understand that. What are you talking about, Dad? What do you know? You've only been around like 32 years longer than I am. You don't have any idea. So I'm like, Josiah. So finally, I had to take him and get him down off of the counter. I had to do a little bit of discipline there to get him off the counter. Why? Because I'm trying to protect him and train him. And hopefully, I don't have to restore his health after he breaks his nose. So that's what I'm doing, though. So here, if, you want, if you're a note taker, here is what... Uh, here's what discipline is for in the church. The purpose of church discipline is this. It's restoring the erring believer to fellowship with God and others. And this word is so important to me, that's why it's in bold. Restore. When you think of church discipline, it's always to restore a person back into fellowship with God and others. Number two, it's for purification. God is holy. God is holy. He asks us to be holy. He wants the church to represent him. You know this in your workplace, right? In your workplace, you represent the company that you work for. A couple weeks ago, I was at a McDonald's. I was in the drive-thru, and they have peppermint mochas right now, which I love peppermint mochas. So if you're looking for a gift idea for me, McDonald's gift card would be okay. But 
but only the month of December. So anyway, the, so I'm in line for this, this thing. And I, I told the kids, I'm not getting you anything, all right? I'm just getting this coffee. This is for me. It's not for you. And we're in this line. And I have never been at a McDonald's that it took longer. It was 15 minutes. Like, I don't know what happened in there. The poor, like, when I got to the line, all right, when I got to where they hand you your stuff, the lady had just had the drink out the window. She didn't even, like, talk to me. She didn't want to look at me because she knew this was 15 minutes. This dude's got a minivan. There has to be kids in there. It's bedlam inside there. So, and I didn't even get him anything. It's terrible. I know. Worst. <laughs> bad, bad father moment. But... What that did for me was that misrepresented McDonald's because I was like 90 seconds. Come on, 90 seconds, 15 minutes. Doesn't make me want to go back there, right? Your performance as an employee represents your company or your performance as, let's put it this way, your kids. When your kids fail, why is it hard for you? It's hard for us because it represents what? Us. We take it personally. Like, oh, my kid blew it. And now it's like, oh, that reflects on me as a parent. We've got to work on that. That's a different sermon for a different time. But it's true. So purification, God is holy. He's working on us. He's changing us. We're in this process of sanctification. The next one, to protect the church. And I would simply say this, to protect the church, if the children are playing with matches, there's a chance that the house might burn down. If the children are playing with matches, there's a chance that the house might burn down. And so discipline is to deal with that. So now we got through that. Let's move on to ask the question, well, how are we supposed to do this? How does God ask his family to handle sin? How are we supposed to do this? Well, he gives us this illustration, all right? And I want to ask you before I do this, who in the room is perfect? If you are perfect, I want you to raise your hand. Go ahead, raise your hand. All right, nobody's taking me up on that one. Good, all right. Not one of us is perfect. And I find it interesting, I find it really interesting that we as Christians are really good at saying, yep, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner saved by grace. Praise Jesus for the grace because I am a sinner. But the minute someone comes to confront me about a sin that I've committed, I'm like, what are you talking about? I didn't do that. Or, I did that because, I talked about that person because I'm concerned. So I was gossiping about them, but I'm concerned about where they're at. Or, I yelled at them, but they deserved it. Didn't you see how they were acting? Yeah, I know I lost it in my anger, but, or, yeah, maybe I drink a little bit too much, but have you seen my family? I mean, so, do you get where I'm coming from, though? Like, somebody confronts us with a sin, we say, yeah, I'm a sinner, but the minute someone confronts us, we're like... Hold up, man. What are you talking about? Right? We get so defensive. We get so defensive about that, and yet we all confess that we are sinners. I mean, we're familiar with, we memorized this one as a young child, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So I would just say, if you walked in here this morning unknowing of what you were getting into, you're in good, in good hands because we are all sinners here, saved by the grace of God. And we're just working on how do we do better at this thing called living the Christian life. So God's formula. I'm going to give you God's formula to deal with sin, right? It starts with you and me. 
God's formula to start with sin deals with, or starts with you and me. So I'm going to give you five points here. Five things to think about. Uh, number one, the first thing we need to do is be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading. Ephesians 5, Paul tells us to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Remember what Peter says to Ananias. You allowed Satan to fill your heart. Why did you allow Satan to fill your heart? We're supposed to be full of the Holy Spirit. This is step one. If we are doing our work, if we are taking time in prayer, if we're reading God's word, then God's going to bring about conviction on our hearts. And we're going to be able to look at ourselves and say, yeah, you know the way I handled that conversation? Boy, when we were talking about that person, that went to a place it shouldn't have gone. And so now I can go and I should be able, if I don't justify myself, but I should be able to go to somebody else and say, hey, you know what? I need you to forgive me. And they'll look at you and say, why? What would you do? And you can say, I was having a conversation with somebody and it went to a place it shouldn't have gone and I I said some things I I really feel bad about and misrepresented you. Please forgive me. That's where this starts. With allowing the Holy Spirit to lead us. This is where, you talk about being vigilant. You talk about going out into the community and saying, hey, stop sinning into our world, our culture. This is where we need to be vigilant, right here. We need to continually be asking the question, am I filled by the Holy Spirit or am I allowing Satan to work in my heart? So important. Because when I sin against somebody, I have to be humble enough to go and apologize and ask for forgiveness. Maybe you're sitting here this morning, you've been harboring bitterness towards somebody. You need to go and say, hey, forgive me. Because I've been harboring this bitterness towards you. And it's not right. It's not healthy. Next. We come to this passage in Matthew chapter 18. I want to look at this passage with you. So if you would, turn back to page 816 with me. We're going to look at Matthew 18 for the remainder of our time together. Got about 10 minutes left. We'll work through Matthew 18 together. This is a famous passage for those in the church. Those of you who've grown up in the church, you probably are familiar with this. Matthew 18. I'm going to read it first. I'm only going to read a couple verses here and then we're going to work through it. So if another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or a tax collector. We're going to stop right there. So the first one, or point two that I want to give you, number one doesn't really show up in here, but number two, have you been sinned against? Then go and talk to the person. This right here, I will tell you, is the hardest step in the process. And rarely do we get to this one. Rarely do we get to this step because oftentimes we will avoid, we'll push it down, we'll, we'll say, ah, I'm gonna, it's not bothering me, I'm not going to approach them, or we'll think they're a jerk, I'm just going to leave, we're not going to have this relationship anymore. Whatever it is, this step is the hardest for us to accomplish. And I would tell you that if the church, if the family of God can accomplish this, if we could do steps one and two, we would be so much further than we are. That when someone sins against you, and there's a question in the, the Hebrew here that, that not all of the translations even say sins against you, but if someone sins, go privately, 
go privately. So that doesn't mean somebody sins against me, I don't go talk to somebody else about it. That means I go to that person already doing the work in my heart, praying that God would humble me, praying, checking myself, making sure I didn't do anything that I need to apologize for. And then I go to that person and say, hey, can we sit down and talk? Can we grab a cup of coffee? I'm not bringing anybody else into the situation. It's just me. And I'm going to go sit down with them. Now, you might ask, well, when do I need to do that? How do I know if I need to do that? Well, 1 Peter 4, 8 says that love covers over a multitude of sins. All right, now don't overemphasize this. Love does cover over a multitude of sins, and there will be offenses that you as a believer in Christ will need to overlook. There will be things that happen, people that say things, that things that people do that you will need to say, you know what, I just chalk that up to a bad day, or maybe they misspoke, or whatever it might be, but I can overlook that. And the test for you, let me give you the test of how you can tell whether or not you can overlook an offense, is can you walk away from that conversation or whatever it was that happened and not have private conversations in your own mind with that person? Let me, let me think about how I'm going to fix that person. If I could say this, this is what I'd say, right? I, I, I do that. There are times where I am driving my car and I'm, somebody's hurt me and I'm having a private conversation with them about how this is going to go, right? But I can't bring myself to go and talk to them. Then I need to know, then I know I, I can't overlook this. I need to deal with this. Or if bitterness is growing in my heart, Hebrews chapter 12 t- tells us, do not allow bitterness to grow in your heart. If you're starting to have bitterness towards that person, then you need to go deal with it. Then you need to go confront it. If you hear that person talking about something and you get cynical in your mind, and you know what I mean by cynical, you start thinking, yeah, right. You better fix yourself. You're going to talk about that, right? You need to go and talk to that person. If you become cynical about somebody else, then you're not overlooking it. You're not overlooking it. So that would be the first thing. If you can overlook it, then overlook it. But if you can't, then you have to go have the conversation. Joseph Grenny says it this way. What you don't talk out, you'll act out. And we don't believe this in the church, but it's true. It's absolutely true. You think that your body language doesn't betray you? It does. You think we can, we think we can hide this? Like I have a problem with this person, we think we can hide it? We can't. It eventually comes out in our conversations, in our conversations with others. It will come out. And so we need to deal with it. We need to have the, the courage to go sit down with somebody, to go and talk to them. And let me tell you, as a pastor, I've had to do this numerous times. And this is one of the things that in my position I hate the most. And I'll be honest with you, I hate this. I hate going and sitting down with somebody when I see something or somebody sinned against me or I see a sin in their life that I'm concerned about. I absolutely hate it. I don't eat well. I don't sleep well. Because my fear, this is always my fear. When I go and sit down with a person, my fear is they're going to reject this. They're not going to like this. They're going to leave the church. It's happened. It's happened. I've gone and sat down with somebody and they say, you know what? I disagree with you. I don't believe it. I'm out of here. I'm going somewhere else because it's easy to find another church. That's my fear. I'm like, God, I don't want to do this. I've been driving to these conversations, having an argument with God. Like, God, why me? Why me? Isn't there somebody else that can have this conversation? Like, look at all the junk in my own life. and I'm going to go point this out in somebody else's life, but it's too important. And we need to be able to speak the truth in love. And it's too important that we don't go and have these conversations. We need to be willing to pay the price. 
We need to be willing to say, you know what, it's worth it. I love you too much not to say this. I love you too much to allow this sin to dominate in your life. And so you are valuable to me and I'm going to come and I'm going to bring it to you. Of course, in a humble way, not, not a judgmental way, and a lot of it's in delivery. But what I would reference here for you is a couple of passages that come out of Proverbs. Because a lot of this, a lot of Matthew 18 sits on us, the receiver, not necessarily even the person that goes, but the receiver. Whoever stubbornly refuses to accept criticism will suddenly be destroyed beyond recovery. The next one. There's a couple of these. I could do more. but So don't bother correcting mockers. They will only hate you. But correct the wise and they will love you. So what category do we fall in? If someone comes to correct us, which category are we in? Are we a mocker or are we a wise person? Are we a fool or are we somebody who's going to take that correction and say, bless you, thank you. I'm humble enough to receive that. Here's why I think this is so tough. And you have to ask yourself this question. Is my justification, is my justification, meaning my right standing with God, is it based on my behavior? Is it based on the things that we do or I do? Is my justification, I'll talk personally for myself, is my justification based on the fact that I try as hard as I can to be a good husband, a good father, a man of God, a guy who knows God's word, a guy who does everything he can to bless the people of God as much as possible? Is that what my justification is based on? Because if that's what my justification is based on, then I am in the category of a Pharisee. My justification is based on the finished work of Jesus Christ, on his blood that was shed on the cross, and the fact that he has risen again. That's what my justification is based on. And not anything, I have nothing I can boast in except Jesus. So if you come to me and you tell me, hey, Chris, I see this sin in your life, or you did this and it offended me, I don't have to look to my performance for justification. I can look to Jesus and I can say, I, I'm sorry, I hurt you. You know what? I, thanks for coming and approaching me. And I think this is the number one reason that this is so hard for us. Because we put so much emphasis on our justification being on a good person. I'm a good person. Yes, you are. You are a good person. But remember, I asked you, who in the room is perfect? Not one of you raised your hand. So when somebody comes to you and says, hey, I see this area of sin, you should have said, boy, it took you this long? (laughs) Took you this long? Our justification is just on Jesus. We just got to get this. this. This penetrated my heart deeper than anything I was working on this week. And I'm so thankful for the privilege that I get to be up here to share it with you because I'm not speaking at you, I'm speaking with you. And God's doing the work in my heart. I just, praise God, I get to to do what I do. All right, next one, we gotta move on. Number three, ask someone to go with you. And we'll work through these real quickly. Ask someone to go with you. If they won't listen to you and you sit down with them and you say that you're concerned and they won't listen and you share this with them, you pray through it, then ask someone to go with you. This is not a pile on, all right? This is not, hey, let's go find somebody else who doesn't like Bob, somebody else who hates Bob. Hey, you don't like Bob? Yeah, I don't like Bob. All right, let's all go and pile on Bob. No, all right? If your name's Bob, I'm not picking on you. It's just the name that came to my mind. But it's finding people who are in 
that sphere, that know that person, that love that person, that want to work towards what? Restoration. It's finding people that want to come around and be restorative in nature, not judgmental in nature. All right? The next part of the process, if you look in Matthew 18, so at any point in this process, I must note that if the person confesses and says, yes, I've sinned, thank you for approaching me, the process is over. Like if you go privately and they say, yes, I, I repent, forgive me, I'm sorry, the process is over. No need to go any further. But as the process goes, if they continue in an unrepentant heart, then you keep going. Chapter, or number four, take it to the church. What does the church mean? Well, the church... As we said, as we've been setting up this series, we always, a lot of people in the U.S. and in the the Western church think church means go to the pastor, go to the elders. Well, yes, that could be, potentially. Maybe it's just going to the life group. Like, hey, you guys are in this life group, found out about this sin. We need to spread the sphere of accountability. We need to help this person, restore this person, so we're going to take it beyond where it is. Right? It could be the pastors, and I could be number two. I could be the second person. You could come to me and say, hey, pastor, I approached this person. Uh, it didn't work out. You want somebody to come with you? I- I'll go. But what I'm telling you is it doesn't necessarily have to be the elders or the pastors. It could be the life group or beyond that. Now, eventually, it will have to get to that elder level. But all of this is restorative. All of it is trying to work that person back, that brother or sister, back to a relationship with Jesus. The last one. This is the one I don't like to talk about. It's happened very, very few times in our history, but it, does, it, it has happened. And so this is taking someone and saying, we're removing you from partnership. And all this is, I, I want to read for you something. Because when all of you, those of you who are partners or members here, you agreed to this statement. And I'm just going to read part of it. Desiring to partner with Bethany Grace Fellowship, I affirm my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior, and I desire to live a life obedient to him. This is important. I commit myself to the purposes of Bethany and I agree to support the ministry of Bethany with my spiritual gifts and financial resources and submit to the discipline of the church. So you agreed to this. So when you are removed from partnership, if that would ever get to that point, all we're saying is you no longer are falling in line with what you said you would do. You're no longer obedient to Jesus Christ. You've now rejected his authority. You say he's not the Lord of your life. Maybe you say it, but your actions are clearly showing you're thinking something else or feeling something else, then at that time what we're saying is we're not in agreement anymore. We can't partner with you because we're not working towards the same goal. And then he goes on and says, treat them as you would a, uh, a corrupt tax collector or a pagan. Well, Jesus kind of set the script on how we're supposed to do that. Right? We're still working towards love, forgiveness, restoration, but we're saying to this person, you're no longer following under, falling under the lordship of Jesus Christ is what we're putting out there. So that's a last resort. That's after a long time of trying to walk with somebody and walk with them and bring them back. Usually it takes over a year of that, at least the processes that I've been a part of. All right. So let's close with this. God is purifying his church. What we find in Acts chapter 5 is God is purifying his church. He is making us into his image. He is working in us to make us more like him. And we are to represent him to the world. And if we are going to represent, if the church of Jesus Christ is going to represent Christ to the culture in the United States, if we're going to represent Jesus to the world, then we have 
to be pure in our hearts. So this purification process, this process is so important because we have to be working here and doing our work here to be in right standing with God, to represent him well to the culture that we live in. And remember what I told you, righteousness, our righteousness, our right standing before God is based on the work and finished work of Jesus Christ. It's not based on the things that I do. So my challenge for us is that we would be humble, first of all, in heart. That we would love love one another enough to approach each other on the hard things. And that we would do it with great dignity, respect, and care. Because God is working to purify his church, that we would represent him as a city on a hill, shining, a light in the darkness. May we work towards that. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your grace, and I thank you for Jesus. Lord, may we never lose sight of the gospel, that we have been bought at a price, we've been made new. You are working in our hearts to sanctify us. Father, I pray that you would forgive me for any time that I've put my hope in my own righteous acts. God, I pray that for all of us, that our hope would cling solely on the work of your son, Jesus. Lord, help us to be humble. Help us to speak the truth in love. Help us to go through this process of Matthew 18 the way you've laid it out. Always trying to restore one another to our commitment to you first and foremost, and our commitment to each other. In Jesus' name, amen.